Very warm welcome to uh, the London School of Economics tonight. Um, very pleased to see the place is uh, full. It's terrific. My name's Charlie Beckett. Uh, I'm a professor at, of journalism uh, in the Department of Media and Communications uh, here at the LSE. I also teach uh, on the summer school that's currently running, so I'm hoping that some of my students are out there somewhere. Um, before I came to the LSE, I was a uh, journalist at places like uh, ITN's Channel 4 News. I was also at the BBC for 10 years, where I uh, was one of the programme editors who launched the BBC's 24-hour news channel. And one of, the, one of the reasons, partly, that the BBC launched uh, that channel was in response to the success of uh, Sky News, which um, had started a few years previously and was proving to be uh, an extraordinary uh, success. So I spent a lot of time watching Sky News, um, partly to see how it's done. And um, so often you'd be seeing Sky News broadcasting live from somewhere in the world, not just correspondents, but they'd move the whole sh uh, show to wherever the big story in the world was. And uh, inevitably there would be Tim Marshall, um, standing there amidst uh, either conflict or protests or uh, elections and government changes. And Tim, I think, exemplified what is uh, the best of that kind of live uh, broadcasting. Always calm, uh, hugely intelligent and insightful, and also someone who uh, was able to connect the human element to those complex geopolitical stories that he was covering. Now Tim has moved on from the, the hamster wheel of 24-hour news. He now has his own very exciting uh, international analysis blog website called uh, The What and The Why, and I recommend that you uh, Google that and have a look. And in particular, he's got a new book out, uh, which is all about, as it says, the impact of geography uh, on international uh, relations And it, again, I've read the book. It's terrific. Uh, it's um, actually a sort of, uh, a, I'm going to say, easy read. It's full of complex ideas and very difficult situations. But um, it's full of his own, Tim's own insights and his own experience of all those years. But particularly this very special perspective uh, of looking at those human political dramas, partly through the frame of the physical realities uh, that they're situated in. Uh, so in a way, in an age of uh, digital uh, information overload, in a way, I think Tim is creating a new way uh, to do journalism intelligently and accessibly. He's going to talk about the book and the ideas behind it and then uh, take any questions that you may want to put to him. If you are tweeting uh, this, the hashtag is LSE Marshall. So please give a very warm welcome to Tim Marshall. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Welcome to the United Nations. <laughs> I used to work at the BBC World Service over there, I think. Its headquarters was just about 100 yards away. It's, it's a very similar, eclectic bunch. And it does help to turn the mic on. But I think you can hear me anyway. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I agree with everything that Charlie said, except for the bit about calm. You know, the thing about a swan... That's what it was like. Where do I start? There. Our preconceptions of geography. 
Thanks to LSE for the invitation. Thank you to Charlie for the introduction. Thank you to Bellaby Maps. Uh, they make these fantastic globes, and I particularly like this one. We brought it along because it's a different view of the world. A bit of Rolls-Royce engineering going on here. Because what happens with this one... It always ha- start, ends up at the top of the world. There's the Arctic. It's, it's upside down, though. Hang on a minute. Since when, since when was Latin America that shape? Well, it's always been that shape. But it does your head in. But why do we look at the world normally like that? Because we're conditioned to. It's kind of interesting looking at it like that. And of course, a lot of people, and some people in other countries, their maps, they do that. And their perspective is completely different. So I thought it was very useful to bring that along. It's also a beautiful, beautiful piece of art. Bellaby's, uh, I think, they're the only people in this country hand-making such... I think they're a work of art. Um, If you want the price list, if you want to know how much it costs, you can't afford it, basically. (laughs) Where do we start? We start on why. The what and the why. The why is that I, I believe strongly from all the years doing the stories around the world, that that often we overlooked geography. Um, I am aware that there are intellectuals, possibly some of them here, that think that a deterministic view of history and current affairs is wrong. There was a guy called Mackinder back around 1900 who wrote the the first uh, academic erudite theory of geography being he felt the determining factor of history. I'm only saying it's a determining factor in history, and it is the overlooked determining factor in history. And that in our news reports, it should feature more. I'm not saying we don't do that. Uh, You will see on the news channels, a graphic will come up, it'll explain A to B, and it gives you a better context. But I don't think it's done enough. And I know that great men and women push history, and I know that ideas push history, Uh, the movement of people's climate, which of course is partly geography, but geography is the overlooked one. And so if I can work out how to use this, because I'm not under 30, let's see what happens. Ooh, okay, well there's the book. It's a good start. And there's a map of the world. This is the uh, Mercator map, the one which nearly all of us are familiar with. And if you look at how the shape of Africa that's the shape of Africa or is it? If I can get this the right way round yep Uh, this is the Peter's map any any of you familiar with the Peter's map? yeah I think more people should be familiar with the Peter's map because that is more the shape of Africa than that and that's because they have to squeeze. You can't put a round, a round thing like this on a flat surface, so you have to squeeze it down. But look how big Greenland is, and look how big Africa is. That's far more realistic. Greenland is nowhere near as big as Africa. Nowhere near at all. But um, we have to have it that way <coughs> on the classic maps. I personally prefer that one. There's a whole academic argument. You can spend hours doing it, but um, let's not do that tonight. So what's next? The place that's everywhere. It doesn't matter where you look, there's Russia, always. 
Russia's a fascinating country, and you probably can't see all of the screen, can you? Sorry about that. Will this fall over if I push it? We'll find out. Thanks. Can we actually just take it off? Because you can't see, can you? Yeah. I'll help. Thank you. Sorry about that. Is that better? Uh, Russia. Wait, wait, wait. Russia. 11 time zones. Biggest country in the world. Um, 25 times bigger than Britain. Five times b- bigger than the United States, I believe. And it all started not there. started around about Ukraine. In its very early days, that's, that was the first Russia. And it spread around about like that. The problem was, and I'm talking 10th century, 11th century, this lot down here kept finding a gap through here, coming up through there and killing them all. And the reason they can do that is because that's all flat. The whole lot is flat. Not very many rivers, big, wide rivers that are hard to cross. So eventually they started to push out. They pushed up to the Arctic because nobody's going to get them from there. They pushed all the way to the Urals because it's hard to get over them, so you don't get attacked from there. But crucially, they moved down here and they started building defensive forts in the Caucasus. And what we now know as the Russian Empire began to emerge. And therefore, they were all blocked. Still had a go, of course, but they tended to go that way after that. So Russia became what we know as Russia. And eventually, they pushed all the way to the Pacific. Now, fast forward. Well, actually, no. Yeah, let's fast forward to last year, to 2014. But let's bear in mind what happened in between those two points. They got invaded this time coming across here. And then they got invaded again. And then they got invaded again. And then they got invaded again. There's three more. Seven times in about 500 years. Nearly always straight across the flatland there. Occasionally coming up through here. That was when the Brits used to have a go at them um, through Balaclava, those sorts of wars. But if you counted from 1812 when Napoleon had a go, and 44 when Hitler turned around and ran off, they were fighting in this flatland here every 35 years for 200 years. What does that do to your head? Every single time the barbarians come that way and invade you. Now this is the North European plain. From the Baltic there to the Carpathians... I've lost, but they're about here. <laughs> no, they're about, no, there they are, sorry. From the Baltic there to the Carpathians. That's only 300 miles wide. That's nothing. If I've got a huge country like Russia and loads and loads of troops, I can funnel them all up there because I do not want to defend along a 2,000 miles of flatland because I can't. What I can do is push up and stop the barbarians right there. Unfortunately, it's called Poland. Pretty unfortunate for the Poles. It's why it keeps disappearing off the map. They're still, in their heads, extremely scared about what's going to happen in the future. But put yourself in Moscow's head. They're looking that way. They've been invaded and invaded and invaded. Of course they're going to seek to dominate this flat ground in front of them. They lost Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. They lost Poland. They lost Moldova. Every single country in the Warsaw Pact is now in NATO or the European Union. 
What does that do to your head? They say, NATO said it wouldn't come to our borders. That's in NATO, that's in NATO, that's in NATO, that's in NATO. That, if they want to come in NATO, that's war. They can't come into NATO. And we know that, which is why we're not going to allow them to come into NATO, because that's war for the Russians, because they keep getting invaded. Now, it doesn't matter that I don't think we're about to invade them. I'm not sure we're capable of invading them. Certainly Britain isn't. But in their heads. So last year, what happened? When Yanukovych, the Ukrainian president, fled, they thought a version of oh dear. And there's two reasons for it. One is the one we've explained about the flatland and them keeping it. But the other one, and this is actually probably more important, it's a little bit cold up here. This is where their ports are. Mamanx, for example, freezes six months a year. Bloody Vostok all the way around here. Well, A, it freezes for four months of the year, and B, it's a little bit enclosed. They don't have a route to the sea lanes of the world. They don't, to the open sea lanes. They can get there, but it's not very easy, especially if you can't leave for six months of the year. The only warm water port Moscow has happens to be right there in what is called... Yeah, you know it. Come on. Where is that? It's Crimea. That's their only warm water port. It's the only port they have 12 months a year. So what are you going to do if you're a Russian leader and the, the guy that you've spent several hundred years making sure is not against you flips into the Western sphere of influence? History and geography do not give you a choice. You are a prisoner. You are imprisoned by geography. You invade Crimea and you annex it. That's why he did it. He wasn't with the Russian leader that lost the only warm water port that Russia has. And so he was a prisoner of geography. You may disagree. Even then, it's pretty hard to get out. I'll show later on how, how where, where, where's, where's it going to go? There it is. How to get it. Even that, I mean, it's, it's, it's a warm water port. It's really not that good do a lot better, which is why they kept coming down here, trying to get Afghanistan down to the warm water ports down here, but we can come back to that later. They've never done it, and probably never will. That's Russia for you. Um, very, oh, that's, and this is, um, yeah, these are more geopolitical fault lines. This is the guy, uh, Waywell, David Waywell, he does the cartoons for, for um, our website. Um, <laughs> that's his thing with Putin's ears. Um, it's his cartoons, he draws what he wants. I am not in a position to sanction him. But uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of all those things going on, uh, as there are in most leaders. Churchill, most people know Churchill's maxim or, or his phrase that uh, Russia is a, an enigma wrapped inside a, middle, a riddle inside a mystery. But they end it there. He actually goes on in that paragraph to say, but the key to that mystery is... Power and nationalism, that's all the Russian leaders understand. And I think that's true today, for better or worse. Depends if you're pro-Russia or against Russia. Ah, yeah, this is how it's very... So, they get Sebastopol, great. Because they only had it on lease from Ukraine. They had about 50 years left on it. And, of course, if Ukraine ever did join NATO, which it won't, they could flip Problem is, where are you going to get? You still can't look. There's a Bosphorus. You've got to get your fleet through the Black Sea, and that's a NATO country now. That's a NATO country now. You've got to come through the Bosphorus, only a mile wide. Turkey, that's a NATO country. 
Even then, you're only out in the Aegean. Greece, still a NATO country. Who knows? Putin would absolutely love a warm water port in the Aegean, and he'll pay very, very well for it. Which is what, why Tsipras keeps going off to Moscow every half an hour. Even after the Aegean, you're still not out into the world's sea lanes, but you're getting there. They're building another port here, uh, Novi Vostorosk. They're building 80 ships. I still don't think in the event of war, and forgive me for being so alarmist, I don't think we're about to have a third world war, but in 1890, projecting forward, you didn't think what would happen in 1939 would happen, and in 1925, when you project forward, etc., etc. Wars happen, they will happen, they're going to carry on happening, there are going to be wars in five years, in ten years, in fifteen years, and they're going to be pretty unpleasant. I don't know which ones they're going to be. You can't rule out that one, which is why the planners from NATO and their planners... No, they've got to get out of the Sea of Azov. They've got 80 new ships they're building. And come down there that way. I don't think they can break out. The, Romanians are, the Americans are encouraging the Romanians to build a very nice modern navy. I don't think they can break out, but they can have a go. And we'll come to the other place they can't break out of later. I think that's quite enough on Russia. Because I'd like to welcome our Chinese friends. You arrived in London today? Yeah, well, you're very welcome. It's great to see you. I'm about to annoy you, perhaps. (laughs) China. What are we going to say about China? It's very big. There's a lot of people there. What else are we going to say about it? China is... um, began there, the North China Plain. And the Yellow River and the Yangtze River. And go back 4,000 years... You go back two and a half thousand years, around about Confucius, that's when the identity of, of China, as, as we know it now, starts to really emerge. And it's from then they also start building this extremely important canal that connects the Yellow to the Yangtze. So now you've got these two trading routes that connect, and China really starts to build. But they did the same thing as Russia. They also used to get invaded by the same lot. They all used to come down here. So that little, that, that's the Great Wall of China. Um, sort of helped but what really helped was by about two and a half thousand years ago there were 60 million of them already that's quite a lot and they, 90% of Chinese are Han Han Chinese 90% of the 1.4 billion are Han ethnically the same which means that the people up in Tibet and the Uyghurs of Xinjiang and one or two other places are real minorities 90% are Han Chinese. And as we said, there's quite a lot of them. Of that 90%, uh, well, no, of the 1.4 billion, uh, 1 billion of them live pretty much there. That's an area not quite as big as America. A billion of them. It's pretty crowded, China. Where are you going to live? You could live there, maybe. You could live up there. And this is where I might fall out with our Chinese friends. People know the word settlers, and they're usually connected to a particular country. I would argue that although that's an important issue and we should discuss it, there are other bigger issues involving settlers. Tens of millions of them. Tens of millions of settlers. There. More than half of that, what was a country, is now Han Chinese. 
They built a, an amazing railroad. But they did the, what, what um, people thought couldn't be done. They built a railroad across it, the, the roof of the sky. They're building facts on the ground, on the, on the roof of the world. Tens of millions of them. They're changing the whole area. And it doesn't matter what Richard Gere says. Richard Gere, who was a Hollywood actor you may have heard of, he was very exercised by this, and quite rightly so, as is the Dalai Lama, very exercised by it. But where does China get its water from? Up there. It's called the Fountain of China. All goes there. You've got a billion people there, they need water. It comes from there. They're never giving it up. It doesn't matter what Richard Gere says. The other thing about Tibet is it's very useful because it abuts the Himalayas. If you don't control Tibet, who might? They might. Now, they don't. They didn't try to particularly, but they might have done. So the politics of fear and geography then come together. You might as well control Tibet for various reasons, but also you don't want them. Because if they control it, they are on the high commanding heights in control of the water, looking down into where most people live. China now, last bit, is in a very good place, very safe place. Modern armies can't get down there without being seen. There's nobody up there. There's about 7 million people live in that whole part of Russia. There's a billion people down here. Where do you think they're going to live? That part of Russia will be populated by Chinese people within 100 years. They will be the majority within 100 years. All that bit there, including down to Vladivostok, will probably be majority Chinese. And the Russians can't get to them. They're not capable of it anymore anyway. Uh, you've got sea down here, so amphibious landings, very, very hard, especially when you've got massive army. Jungle, hard to get through. The Chinese did get through and dominated Vietnam for a thousand years, but there's only been one war recently. Burma, jungles, mountains, Thailand. Uh, they are both India and, and China are both going after Nepal and Bhutan. I think India will win that. Um, Tibet, obviously, no one can really invade you through there. You can't even breathe the, the air at some point. Uh, the old, uh, Xinjiang, sorry, I forgot to mention that. That, is, that was predominantly Muslim. Is now, it's, there are no official figures that you can trust. It's approaching 50% Han Chinese. 50 years ago, it was overwhelmingly Muslim. The Uyghurs, as they're called. And the next time you see on the news uh, there's been an attack in a train station or a bomb or people mass stabbings, it'll probably be because of that situation there. So China is now moving out into the world. They're building a lot of transport networks through the old Silk Road coming up through Kazakhstan. And it's working. They're doing really well. But 90% of Chinese um, trade is done by sea. It's much cheaper to move things by, by water than it is by road. Much cheaper. 90%. So, okay, that means they're coming this way and this way and this way and this way. And in the way, there's what they call the nine-line dash. They have a problem. They have a number of problems. One is Okinawa. Big American base. And the Japanese are busy piling every shorter ship missile they get their hands on, on the very tip of Okinawa. And the message to the Chinese, we know you're coming out into the world. We know you will be the equal of America by 2050, 2060, whichever it's going to be. Although I'm not convinced it will be, but we'll see. I've got to wish either way. 
But the, the message from Japan is, we know you're coming out, don't mess with us on the way out. We've got these islands, we're not giving them up, and on Okinawa, we can get you. Don't try it. That's the message from Okinawa. Taiwan, they're doing a really good job, the two, two countries. The two entities are doing a very good job. Taiwan actually says that its official title, that it controls all of that. It really does. Officially, Taiwan controls all of that. From Beijing's point of view, Beijing controls all of that, including that. <laughs> Who's going to win? They're doing a really good job. Taiwan goes to the little African countries and says, we'll give you 20 million quid if you recognize us. And uh, Beijing goes to little African countries and says, we'll give you 90 million quid if you recognize us and don't recognize them, which is why very few people recognize Taiwan. It doesn't pay. Some of them have. These islands are rather problematic. Um, under UNCLOS, the United Nations Law of the Sea, if when the tide comes in, a bit of rock that sticks out of the sea is covered by water, it is not an island, and you cannot claim it or build on it. China is ignoring that, and you may have seen the pictures. They're building all these islands, huge things. You've got runways on them. Armies are marching up and down them. It's great. Because if it is an island, and it is yours, and it's in your territory, you've got 200 miles of exclusive economic zone under the UNCLOS law. 200 miles in that direction, ours, not yours. Well, Taiwan has a view on that. Vietnam has a view on that. The Philipp- they all have a view on it, and they all say, will you please stop building those islands? Mind you, they've, been, they've done it as well. Don't get me wrong. There's going to be a clash there. Um, let's hope they can sort it out at the United Nations. That got a great track record, as we know. Last thing about China is that it inevitably will do what America reluctantly became. It will become an econ- it, well, it, it's becoming an economic empire that will inevitably lead to it becoming an empire of sorts. Not an ideological empire, but an empire of sorts. Because, A, you've got to guard your sea lanes, and at the moment, coming down here, and then coming through the Strait of Malacca, which is just down here, at the Philippines. Um, sorry, not the Philippines, Malaysia. The Strait of Malacca, 83% of China's oil goes through the Strait of Malacca. Who controls the state of Malacca? Well, the three countries around it, all of which are American allies. Who keeps the sea lanes open for all the world? The United States Navy. Well, how long is China going to allow that? It's its own backyard. Remember the Monroe Doctrine? America said to the whole world, Latin America, ours, anyone that comes there will fight you. They're going to have to have their own version of the Monroe Doctrine eventually. And it's a case of how America and China manage that situation And let's just hope they can. At the moment, they're doing a good job of it. They are gently bumping up against each other. Let's hope they don't clash. Um, There are many reasons they might clash. And also, the Americans are busy making sure that the Vietnamese Navy, the Japanese Navy, the South Korean Navy, it's all coming up. That is a coming tension. And I think in the South China Sea, the islands will be very problematic. And in the East China Sea... Uh, the Ryukyu Islands, which are also disputed. Uh, they could say an awful lot more about China. In fact, every map that we now show, there is now a Chinese influence. Even here, but we want, let's, not, let's just stick to Europe on this. It's quite a place. It's uh, a very, very diverse place, speaking lots of different languages. Um, it's key to its success. Uh, oops, sorry. Key to its success lies 
probably in the Danube Basin, this whole area around here. Lots and lots of lovely long rivers, flat land, beautiful agriculture. It's why Europe rose so fast. It's one of the reasons Europe rose so fast. But it's a very diverse place, and um, I personally think ever closer union is dying before our eyes. I think it's a wonderful experiment. A bit like Yugoslavia. Beautiful idea. It's dying before our eyes, and we're going back to the nation states, and let's hope we don't behave the way that the nation states behaved before. Just picking out some places. Spain is destined never to be as rich unless technology changes as some other parts because of the Mesita Central. Look at that huge mountain. It's very hard to get your stuff across here. Also, you're going to trade that way? They do trade that way. But they haven't got as much money as they've got. So you want to trade that way, but it's harder to get your stuff there. It's one of the reasons, as well as Franco and the fascism, why they've been held back. That's a lovely bit of real estate. You'd really want that. Beautiful, beautiful farmland and that. They're in a pretty good position. Great farmland, loads of fishing, lots of trees with which to build a navy in the 15th century. Didn't see an Egyptian navy going around the world, did you? They haven't got any trees in Egypt. This stuff matters. Hardly anybody knows about this. The GIUK, the Greenland-Iceland-UK gap. What is it a gap for? It's a gap for the Russian navy to break out when its ships can finally get through the ice and come down into the real ocean seaways. But they've got to come through there and through there. Well, they're not going to come down through there. That's one of the best defended pieces of, of water in the whole world. So they're not coming down through there. They're going to try and come down through there or through there. That's what the Germans tried to do when they used to try and get out of the Baltic. Oh, and that's why last year, when Scotland wanted independence, London, very quietly, was panicking. Because you don't want to lose those bases. Because that's where all the British ships that defend the GIUC gap are. And without those bases, you're a bit exposed. And who knows what the Russian fleet might do in 20 years? Or in the autumn? Who knows? <laughs> Another problem the Russians have, mind you. Okay, yeah, looking at it from the Russians' perspective, well, yeah, we need to get out down there. Why? Because our Baltic fleet has got to get past three NATO members there. Well, not, not if it's in Kaliningrad. He's got to get out through the Skagaret Strait. NATO member. How the hell do you get out there? That's where the Brits, the Brits used to wait here and ambush the Germans during World War II. Same thing. Just call them Russian subs instead of uh, British subs. Moving on. Supposed to be America? Isn't? No, that's my fault. Okay, we're now talking about... Um, Damn. Just gave away my joke. Uh, I'm, missing, uh, I'm missing a map of the Middle East it doesn't matter because I've got one that's much more central to what's going on at the moment Syria this is a great example of why you need to put geography into news reporting if you look at a pattern of the fighting especially over the last year once things have started going wrong for the Assad regime you notice there is a pattern to it and that pattern is they're keeping the road open from Dimash, Damascus, up to Homs. Big left turn takes you to this area here. Why? Because that's where the Alawites came from in the first place. Assad is an Alawite, an offshoot of Shia Islam. They were the poorest of the poor. 
ground into the dust, hill folk, not allowed to read and write, no jobs, absolutely disloathed by the rest of society, not considered proper Muslims by the Sunni. The Shia thought they were a bit odd as well. Fast forward to 1920, and the French have learnt from the British, and they decided, let's do a bit of divide and rule. Work for the Brits, let's divide and rule this lot. And they raised up the Alawites, gave them a little mini-state up above Tartus and uh, Latakia here in the hills. And what the pattern of fighting over the last year has shown us is they're keeping that escape route open in case they have to make a run for it. Because they will all die. Tens of thousands of them will be murdered if they lose. They're not going to have a nice little peace treaty. Tens and tens of thousands of the Alawites will be slaughtered, just as they've slaughtered everybody else in the last few years. It's an existential matter and it's a fight to the death. Tartus uh, also, that's, the Russians have a very small port there. Um, very small. I mean, it's just a resupply, a few patrol boats, a few, you know, you could land a few special forces if you had to get the Russian ambassador out in a hurry, which they might have to do at some point, we'll see. But that, that's, that's one of the reasons Russia supports Syria. It also supports Syria because it's great to stick it to the Yanks. Wonderful. You take any opportunity you can. Uh, in uh, Afghanistan, they made sure they didn't help the Americans very much because they wanted to bleed the Americans. Not for the Americans to lose in Afghanistan. If the Americans lose in Afghanistan, radical Islam might push all the way back up to their borders in Russia. So you want to bleed the Americans, but you don't want them to lose. They played a very clever game. A lot of people died. So that's one way to understand what's happening in, in Syria. Up here, by the way, used to be part of Syria, and there are people that still would like it to be part of Syria. The Kurds are up here. I personally believe we are witnessing the birth of Kurdistan. Certainly they'll take parts of Syria and possibly Iraq. Whether they can take parts of Turkey and Iran and join them all together to make Kurdistan is, is another matter. Rahaya, I think they call it in, in Kurdish. But that's this area here. And they are the ones that have done the fighting, a lot of the dying. Uh, this bit here, it's sand. It matters, though, because you can get stuff across into Iraq. Iraq is just Iraq is there, and the stuff that the uh, Islamic State control is there. Enough of Syria. This is the one that gets everybody. I don't know why. It is a small... Isolated? No, it's not isolated, but it's a small, it's a little war, it's a little problem. It's, not many people die, not many settlers settle, and yet it captures the entire world's imagination. People are almost obsessive about it, including myself, but it's, just, it's such a small issue compared to these uh, great issues, and all the people that care so passionately about it do bugger all for the people of the DRC. Democratic Republic of Congo, who have lost six million people. I can't hear anybody shouting in the streets about it. It's called the... What's the word? Well, you choose your outrage, I think, and people seem to choose their outrage about this place. Okay. I'm outraged occasionally by it. But geography. God willing, there will be a state of Palestine soon. May it be in our time. If so, you're going to have to join that bit to that bit. It's 25 miles. There are plans for a tunnel. There are plans for a flyover. There are plans for a straight road, which would have to be fenced because, well, you know why. God willing, that will happen. God willing, there will be a port there that can trade with the outside world. 
I don't see it happening anytime soon. But it's one thing to understand about the, you know, the, the geography of it, 25 miles. The other thing to understand is the West Bank is mostly hill country running north to south or south to north. Now, forget the rights and wrongs of what's happened. Really, put that out of your mind for the time being. Instead, concentrate on that from there, the West Bank border, to there, Tel Aviv, 12 miles wide. Now, it doesn't matter if you support the Israelis or you don't support the Israelis, you hate the Israelis or you love the Israelis. None of that gets rid of that 12-mile gap. 12 miles is nothing. And if that's high land up on the West Bank, and you've got 12 miles to hit, the Israelis will never sign a peace treaty that allows an army on those hills. Never. And you've got to understand that geography. Again, you might think, well, they bloody should do. Well, fine, but they're not going to, because it's only 12 miles, and any army up there can cut Israel in half. And 70% of Israel's population and commerce is pretty much from there to there. You can cut that country in half, any decent army. So they're never going to sign that. They probably also wouldn't sign unless there's going to be some control of that border there, because they would fear that even if the treaty says there's no army there, an army will get weapons through there. And again, we, we could easily argue about the rights and wrongs of it. It does dominate people's lives, but that's the geography of it. And um, so, oh, the last bit on Israel, actually, quite. I was up on the Golan Heights about three weeks ago, and it struck me at the time that um, the idea of the Golan going back to Syria is utterly finished for several generations because you've got the Nusra Front up on the Golan Heights on the Syrian side. And if they gave the Golan Heights back to Syria, you would have, if they had given the Golan Heights back, you would now have the Nusra Front and Islamic State at some point up on the Golan Heights looking down onto the Sea of Galilee. It's finished for a generation. They could, they could do a business with Assad. They can't do a business with these new guys in town. Sad. There we are. Very long way away, isn't it? It's a really long way away. Um, where's Buenos Aires gone? There it is. Buenos Aires to New York is 6,000 miles. Buenos Aires, sorry, New York to Paris is 3,000 miles. Who are you going to trade with? We kind of, I think in our heads, we kind of lump them together. You know, well, yeah, Latin America, America, 6,000 miles down there. And a lot of people say um, there's a lot going on there. And yeah, there is a lot going on there, but it's, it's going on, there's a lot going on a long way from nowhere, from anywhere. It's just, there's not, it's hard. It's really hard. In 1900, though, they were the seventh most uh, successful country in the world economically. But they, they keep turning into a basket case. Chile is possibly the most strangest uh, shaped country in the world, but that's just an aside. This bit here is the Andes, four and a half thousand miles long, longest continuous mountain chain in the world. It's really useful here, loads and loads of um, hydroelectric powers, they're doing very well. But you've got your coastal plain here, you've got this side here, and it's very, very hard to trade between them because of the. Now, they are making inroads, they are building across but they don't trade. And they keep making up silly things like a European Union and putting a Latin American name in it, but they mostly exist on websites. You know, they'll have an office block in Ecuador or something, but they'll have an office block and a website. 
That's about it. Brazil has seven ports, big ports, major ports. Those seven major ports can handle less goods in one year than the single port of New Orleans. Very, very hard to become a big power. I mean, they've got the, the, the physical land size and the population, and they're pretty good at a lot of stuff. Soybeans, but they're brilliant at soybeans. Um, it's very hard for them to become a genuine, even regional, big, proper regional power, and to challenge the North Americans if you've got seven ports that can only handle the same as New Orleans. Um, I don't, every decade, everyone says, oh, this is the beginning of the, the, the resurgence or the renaissance, or it's the beginning of the Latin American decade, and it never is. And I don't want it to be so, but I don't think it will, I want it to be so, but I don't think it will be so. Um, there's an awful lot of people who say that they want something to happen and therefore they believe it will happen, as opposed to saying what you want to happen but actually understanding that just because you want it to happen doesn't mean it will. Um, it's a bit of a problem, especially in academia. Sorry, did I say that out loud? <laughs> Where are we? Ah, fantastic. I'd like to thank my publishers, uh, publishers uh, Elliot and Thompson, for this, because I thought we'd do a map of the Arctic the way I see the Arctic. I look, I see the, I look at, there's Britain, I look up the map, and there's the Arctic. It's far more useful to see the Arctic like this, because that's what it really looks like. I could see, yeah, it's under there, isn't it? Far more useful. Then you say, oh, right, it really is an ocean. And it really is surrounded by countries, because I just sort of think it's a bit of water up there. As an aside, um, 1905 was the first time anybody made it through the, um, where is it, Canada? What was his name? Ad Adminson? Great. Swedish? Admin. Thank you. And what was he, Dan Swedish? Danish? Anyway, the great explorer, Admundsen, in 1905, finally found a way through this lot, the Great Northwest Passage. Came through the Bering Straits. 1905. You know, until 1905, we did not, we were not able to get through there. He came round here, came round the bend, and lo and behold, there was a whaling ship coming up from San Francisco, and that's how he knew. And he wasn't an emotional man, but at that point he cried. He realized he'd found the way through the Northwest Passage. And now more and more people are going because the ice is melting more often, so you can get up that route to do some trading and even get through there and go to China, cut 6,000 miles off doing that way, which saves you a lot of petrol and time. But it's the petrol that's good because you know, we know why, most of us know why, why, why the, uh, the ice is melting. Now, it's going to be problematic. They claim most of it. They claim a lot of it. They want the oil that's up there. Well, so do they. There is UNCLOS. Uh, there is also the um, Arctic Council. It's a very good forum. They're all very polite. They get on. Uh, it's good stuff. You don't get, you know, remember Khrushchev taking off his shoe and banging it on the table at the UN. You don't get any of that. They're really civilized. They really get on with each other. Um, which reminds me, uh, at the UN recently, the... Um, the Saudi ambassador walked up to the podium and he walked past the Iranian ambassador and he said, you tried to kill my ambassador in New York. He <laughs> shouted at him. It really is, what, I mean, you know, people are people. I just love it when diplomats aren't diplomatic there. Um, so you've got the Arctic Council to talk about this. And you need to talk about it because there is so much gas and oil there. But who does it belong to? 
If your economic exclusion zone is 200 miles out, okay, we can agree on that. But what happens if you say, ah, yeah, but we've got a continental shelf. And our continental shelf goes all the way from here, out of Siberia, all the way to there. So in other words, the entire Arctic is Russian, says Moscow. They've planted flags on the bottom, titanium flags by submarine, on the bottom of the sea, taken a photograph of it, selfie with Putin in his frogman's outfit. <laughs> it's ours. We're having it. Uh, the Lomonosov Ridge, it says here. Um, and it's Amundsen. Thank you. You're right. Yeah, the uh, Lomonosov Ridge. But everyone's got a ridge these days. They've got a ridge. They've got a ridge. They're all saying it's ours. And how this is sorted out is going to be very, very important. Now, I think there's a chance of it being done peacefully because it's tough stuff up there. It's dark most of the time. You've got 40-foot waves. It's bloody cold. It's hellish to get the stuff out. Can we please cooperate? Unless you don't want it to happen at all, that is another argument I can fully understand because you are going to ruin the Arctic. That's not what we're here to talk about. So how they get that stuff out is, is of critical importance and how much they uh, cooperate. Let's hope they do because um, you don't want to fight up there. Uh, there's a lot to talk about, including smuggling, smuggling of weapons, people... Because the stuff is melting and people are going through there. And at the moment, there are not the naval passages and the navy patrols. And just as you see people smuggling anywhere, there's a gap. There's a gap there. People are smuggling. Uh, lots of nefarious activity is going on. And how it's dealt with is pretty important. Now, what's the most important of all this? Um, probably the South China Sea. That is probably the key area for the rest of the century, if you're talking the biggest picture stuff how the China-America relationship is uh, managed. As I said, so far, so good. That's why you should learn to read proper maps. I don't know if you've ever used this stuff, but that's for... What's the film? Castaway, isn't it? Castaway with... Um, yeah, it's a great film. Uh, buy an iPhone, they said. comes with a map, they said. They're rubbish. They don't work. Let's put a thing of them the world up and um, see if anybody wants to ask a question. Mr. Beckett. How did I do? Perfect. Thanks very much, Tim. So, um, would anybody like to take up arms or or question anything that Tim said. Anybody like to ask any questions at all? Um, we've got microphones as well. When the microphones come to you, if you could... Can I go now? ...ideally say who you are. Can we start with the gentleman in the red there? Um, hello. On. Testing, one, two, three. Okay. Um, really interesting. Thank you very much. Thank but you. You, you, you hardly ever mentioned America which I found very surprising because they seem to be extremely interested in an awful lot of the whole map. Um, and uh, to, to give a minor, little teeny-weeny example, one of the things that gets my teeth grinding was every time somebody says Cuban Missile Crisis when uh, even the shallowest study would tell you that it was the Turkish mi Missile yes. Crisis, oh, yeah. in fact... It's in, it's in the American chapter. Is it? The, the misunderstanding of the Cuban Missile Crisis is that the Russians blinked, and it's not true. They both blinked. 
Russians and the Americans blinked, thank goodness, because um, the Russians took their missiles out of Cuba, but a few months later, very quietly, the Americans took their missiles out of Turkey, and that was the deal. But hardly anybody knows that, and of course the Americans propagate the idea that they won that the worst battle of the Cold War. Um, so, I, I, I mean, I didn't mention um, Japan and Korea, and I didn't mention um, the, the Middle East as a whole. There wasn't time. Um, the book does... It, it, it does. I had to rewrite it for the American version, that chapter, because they know their history better than we do, and they don't call pavements pavements. Um, very, very briefly, it's, it, it's about getting over the Appalachians, buying the Louisiana Territory, that makes you a massive power, making it to the Pacific, and at that point doing what China is now beginning to do and getting out into the world. And the American editor for the rewrite said you need also the conceptual map of America, which is actually the world. And so the American chapter points out more the concrete that they have. The Fifth Fleet is in Bahrain. Diego Garcia... Here, there. I mean, if you a real map of America based on concrete, they're everywhere. But the Chinese will be everywhere. I don't think they'll do what the Americans have done. America was a reluctant empire. I think the Chinese will be a reluctant empire. But as the Chinese get out there as well with their blue water navy, they need a port to go into. They're, they're building in Sri Lanka. They're building in Tanzania. They're building in Angola. The Chinese are doing what the Americans did. Because I think with great power you've got to protect that great power. There are also hundreds of thousands of Chinese now working, and they need protecting. Um, they're already getting killed in various parts of the world. We had a question there on the right, the lady in the white and red. Hello, I'm Michelle, and I'm a student studying politics and geography. Um, I agree with you when you said geography is often overlooked, and I was wondering, as a journalist and someone who has been involved in the media... What measures can you do to influence geography being covered more so that people know the geographical reasons of the conflict and not just the political and diplomatic issues? Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm slightly, well, I'm quite out of the mainstream now and loving it. Um, I can write a book, hopefully get lots of publicity about it. I did always, whenever I could, inject the geographic element just you know, just the element in, into any report, any reports where the, where it was necessary, especially in the conflict zones, um, you know, in, in places like like Syria. Um, it's no, it's. I mean, the best way of explaining it is is when you think it's mindless violence, it's not. It's brutally cold logical violence. You know, this is why these explosions are happening in front of you in order to make this happen, um, and that's all I could do, and it's all I can do now. Um, I, I don't want to dish my colleagues too much you know you, you read the papers well you don't actually you read the websites and uh, I read the papers so does Charlie probably <laughs> I'm older than he is um, you know you, you see the pull out of the, of the map and the this and the that and blah and they do try and explain it and so does TV radio it's slightly more difficult but they just don't do it enough and that's why I'm here excellent Let's, um, I'm conscious that I'm ignoring people on that side. Let's, let's go right to the wall, as it were. Thanks. I just want to get your thoughts on the UN in the future, and as these countries like China and Russia are possibly going to expand, what role or 
what role the UN would like to play in this and the sovereignty that's going to come about? Well, as you know, the UN took a bit of a kicking in the last few years. Um, I'm not convinced of its uh, validity over the next few years. I mean, it still does a lot of really good work, um, and there's a lot of good people in it, but it's, it, it is getting increasingly bypassed. Um, it, it may go the way of the League of Nations. Uh, when you hear things such as the Coalition of the Willing, um, there's a legacy from that. I mean, even Mr. Obama, who was trying to, he tried to mend fences, uh, he has not exactly concentrated his policy via the UN. I think it's, it's wounded, it's limping. I don't know whether it'll fail like the League of Nations. It is in danger of doing so. And it certainly needs to change. The Security Council is, you know, we all know this. The Security Council is a reflection of the victors of the Second World War. We're 70 years on from there. I first heard that they wanted to reform the UN about 30 years ago. They haven't reformed it whatsoever. I think it will take years and years. And it will take places like Brazil, hopefully rising, and saying, come on, guys. And eventually people will recognize, all right, we'll have a South American seat and a rotating chair of the South American seat that will sit on the Security Council. It'll take reform like that. And if it isn't reformed, it'll become even less relevant than it is now. You, you, you mentioned casually almost uh, before that you thought the European Union was, was doomed. Um, oh, don't think I said that. Um, all right. I said, I said the dream of ever closer union right. is dying before our okay, eyes. That's it, different to the EU being. But in doomed. the same way that the United Nations, the dream of a sort of supra global body that could somehow go against, if you like, the forces you're describing, which are kind of, I mean, what could be more local than geography? Yeah. Um, and it, the paradox seems to be that we're in this age where we've got wonderful global communications, and yet. And any more interrelatedness than ever before because of trade and technology and stuff. And yet you seem to be saying that we are, there's going to be a return to geography. Yeah. Globally. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I don't want it to be that way. I want us all to live in peace and harmony for the rest of our lives. But the scramble for resources and the competition and as nations rise and fall, as the pressures of immigration push certain sections of society towards the extremes as I mean I, I fear that if Greece if we don't get it right on Greece it's what is it it's 60 years 70 years since they had a civil war in Greece it's uh, 30 years since they had a military dictatorship in Greece the divisions of left and right are there and can be split even further and you could get serious street violence between the two political factions in Greece if you don't get whatever the solution is right. But Greece has shown us the limits of ever closer union. And I think there can still be an ever wider union. We can still get more countries into a trading block. And again, you know, I'm not pro or anti-EU. The whole point of the EU is that we don't fight each other. Mm. But I just, I just think that what has happened in Greece and elsewhere means that we're not going to have ever closer union. I mean, look at Schengen, the Schengen Agreement, where you can travel around borders, is dying. People are putting the checkpoints back up between Germany and elsewhere and saying, I want to see your passport before you come. Unthinkable. Ten years ago. Schengen is dying. Ever, the euro is all over the place. But my theory on the euro, very briefly, they have 19 pints of um, uh, philosophy, 
which is ever closer union in a euro currency, and they've poured it into a five-pint pot of economics. The 19 of the 19 euro countries, the five are the five that could actually make it work, Benelux, Germany, and France. And if you pour 19 litres into five litres, it's going to spill, and that's what we're seeing at the moment, because they lied to get into the euro, the Germans lied by pretending that they believed the lies, and uh, they've lied ever since, and this is the result of everybody lying. Where we are now. Great. Um, you had your hand up a lot. You st- this lady in the denim. Yeah. Um, well, I would like to ask you, you're a very experienced reporter, and I understand your geographical view on politics, but how have you experienced the economics of, of war? Because there is obviously a very, very strong economic factor, and there are maybe certain aspects of uh, international cooperation or non-cooperation that can be defined not by geography, but uh, by economics, and that has increasing, become increasingly true since the post-war era. Sure. So what would be your I'm, I'm not arguing it's the determining factor. I'm saying it is one of many. Economics absolutely being up there with ideology or faith, uh, but uh, uh, geography is there. But the link between geography and economics is very close, very close indeed. And um, one, well, the nexus, there's an interesting nexus at the moment, which I forgot to mention in Latin America. The Chinese are building a new canal in Nicaragua to rival the Panama Canal. Now, that's a nexus of geography and economics because they want not to rely on the Panama Canal because the Americans safeguard and keep it open and they're not going to have them. Right, we'll build another one. And they're building it through Nicaragua, um, through a, a large lake, so they don't have to dig very much, and then out the other side. It's actually it's closer, it's better. If they drop their rates, everyone's going to use the Nicaraguan canal. Now, I say the Chinese. It's actually a private Chinese business and from Hong Kong, but there's no such thing. It's the Chinese government. So, yeah, of course, of course they're absolutely interlinked, and, and um, you can't understand the news without... A basic grasp of economics, either. That's a, that's a nice example of people actually changing the geography, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. By the way, if anybody up the top wants to ask a question, um, either put your hand up now or Ah, great. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've got the microphone. says chat there by the post, by the pillar. Yeah. Would you regard the EU as being an aggressive institution? Uh, that is provoking Russia. Uh, what exactly is their agenda in regards to the Western uh, part of Ukraine? I don't think the EU is particularly aggressive in its geographical. Yeah. Well, the EU is is. The EU is the solution to 2,000 years of bloodshed, and it's been the most successful uh, thing that's ever happened, probably, in economics, and it's done it without bloodshed. And it's created this incredible space, I mean, a massive, massive geographical space, more people than America, bigger than America, I think, biggest market in the world, and it's done it without bloodshed for 70 years, and uh, long may it continue. It is fraying at the edges. Now, as far as Ukraine, yeah, it wanted... um, I mean, this is where the bloodshed comes in. It wanted to pull Ukraine into its sphere of influence, 
What's wrong with that? Is there something wrong with that? I don't think so. I don't think there's anything wrong with Russia. And so Yanukovych was offered a deal by the EU, which he was going to sign, which most Ukrainians wanted, but by no means all, especially the further east you get. Because in eastern Ukraine, with the Russian-speaking areas, is the heavy industry. And yeah, the EU would have probably got that closed down because it's completely inefficient. Right or wrong is another matter. But that's part of the geographic split of Ukraine. But what's wrong with them saying, do you want to join us? Yes, you do. And saying to Serbia, because they're in the waiting room, do you want to join us? Because apparently they do. Croatia wants to, well, Croatia has joined. They all wanted to join this exceptionally successful club. Please come back. Sorry, do you want to say that again? Sorry, I didn't catch what you were just saying. To have limits in order to prevent future conflicts with Russia. Oh, yes. Well, certainly I don't don't really want... Well, I I would be completely against... Well, (laughs) Russia sees the entry into the EU as the antechamber to then going into NATO, and that is a pattern that has emerged... I am obviously quite happy to abandon the people of Moldova and Georgia and Ukraine, all of who would like to join. But I think if we got Moldova, Georgia and Ukraine who want to join the most successful, prosperous, peaceful organization there has ever been in the history of the world, which has been successful for more people than anywhere else in the world, which has allowed the liberalism and the freedoms and everything that we have now, it's the EU. You should love it. Not some elements of it. However, if the price to pay is going to war with Russia, I think that you endanger everything, and therefore I will reluctantly, as I'm the king, I will abandon the people of Moldova. As perhaps you will, I don't know. Perhaps you'll abandon the people, let's say, of the Baltics, because they're they're coming for the Baltics next. The problem with the Baltics is we've let them into NATO. Uh, Chapter 7, NATO's charter. Attack on one is an attack on all. If, he, if there's an attack on a Baltic state, we must go to war. Otherwise, NATO falls apart. Now, there's ways of attacking. You can put little green men in and pretend that they're not really Russian. But if you had a sustained assault by a Russian armed column, we will go to war. I don't think it's going to happen, but they would fight for Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova. So I'm afraid I'm going to abandon the people of those countries. W- would you abandon them, or do you, are you going to want them in the EU, or what? You're a hard... <laughs> God, it's a great job. Good, good that none of us run, actually run anything. There's a gentleman behind you there. In the, no, behind you, sorry, in the white shirt. Thanks. Um, just a couple of points. First of all, I think uh, when um, Hitler invaded uh, Russia in 1941, he was remembering that the Russians had managed to defeat the Russians in the First World War while most of their forces were fighting the British and the French. But the other, uh, the, the other point I wanted to raise is I was struck by a couple of um, articles that the Chinese ambassador to London and the Russian ambassador wrote in different papers, a month or two apart, and they both began their articles by quoting from Mackinder. Yeah. I was struck by that and delighted by it. And it struck me that this is the way they think. Yeah. We may no longer think in well, Most people have never heard of McKinley. McKinder, rather. Yes, he's the most important yeah. figure that nobody's ever heard well, of. Well, that's because you believe in his theories. <laughs> he wrote them... Explain. As, as do I, up to a point. Um, 
Foreign Office chap, but from memory. Mackinder's theory is that the heartland. Excuse me. Yeah. The heartland is um, that. And he who controls the heartland controls the world. And the Russians were arguing in Tsar somebody's will of 1715. He said, continually agitate down here and get to the ports, get to the warm water. Continually make war in this part of the world. Because if you control the heartland, you control the world. And the Chinese and the Russians follow that. Mackinder put it down in writing. It was very fashionable for a while. I think technology is breaking some of Mackinder's rules. You might not agree. It's a wonderful academic subject. In what what way? Technology? Changing. Well, because the Americans can take off from Missouri, right. they can bomb Mosul, and they can go back without ever landing. Uh, the rules are changing somewhat. You can, you can rule things without being there. And technology, it's, it's complicated. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, let's, let's, let's roam off over here, shall we? Uh, the chap in the blue jacket. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Matthew Halliday, member of the public. Um, the Catholic saints of old prophesied the Islamic invasion of Europe and the Islamic war in France. In the light of the um, refugee crisis and the insurgency, would you like to comment? Uh, yeah, invasion's the wrong word for what's happening. Uh, it wasn't the wrong word for what happened in the uh, what was it, 10th century. Um, the people coming uh, have nothing in their minds about colonising and taking over the way they did all the way up to the gates of Vienna. However, among them, and back in Raqqa and other places, there are people with exactly that on their mind, who openly and publicly state that what they want is to, uh, first we'll take Andalusia and then we'll move on. So that plays into a wider debate of what type of uh, modern European Islam we will have. Will we have the Raqqa version? Or will we have um, a modern, I was going to say Turkish-ish version? It's one of the big debates of our time. And I suppose immigration is, a, is an interesting one because obviously it's mm. not geography in terms of rocks and rivers. But it's human, it's human geography, yeah. isn't it? That, that yeah. force the, the, north, the south is coming north, and there is no stopping it. So let's manage that situation. Um, I will not be told, as I have been in the past, this has got nothing to do with you, what sort of Islam there is. It's got everything to do with me. I live here. This has got everything to do with me. And I have been told you, you've got no right to even comment on it. But hang on, I happen to believe in X, Y, and Z. For example, I'm against female genital mutilation, just to pick one thing. So don't tell me. I can't tell, have, a, have a view on that. And, and I think we need to be more brave and open about what we believe in. I mean, we're getting completely off the subject here, but it, it is a debate we need to have, and it is related to this movement of peoples, which I welcome. I, listen, I'm getting older. I, I know I need someone to look after me when I'm older, and we have a, the wrong, an inverted pyramid of old people and you know, not very many young people, so whoever's going to change my bedpan, I don't care where they come from. That's, that's a charming thought, isn't it? Yeah. Can we take uh, in the middle, yeah, there's a woman with the green, sorry, the woman with the green, sorry, there's two women in the middle there, but sorry. 
Yeah, I just had a question about, I guess, state building in the Middle East and your opinion on, I guess, Sykes-Picot um, specifically, and if you think that that colonial influence in the interwar period set up the region to be yeah. like, inherently unstable or if it was more internal factors. Yeah, we bear... Well, I don't, I'm not going to apologize for something that somebody did 100 years ago, but, I mean, I know you're... Are you American? Uh, your presidents keep apologizing for things in the past, and I, and I think there are times when they need to, um, slavery being, being one of them, and I thought it was quite brave. Was it Clinton? Anyway, whoever. Um, and by the way, congratulations on taking down that flag. Way to go. Big supporter of that flag coming down. Um, yeah, we bear, bear a partial responsibility. I personally think that the people who shoot people in the back of the head bear the most responsibility for murder. But there is a connection to us, and the connection is colonialism, and the connection is the Sykes-Picot line. And I use Sykes-Picot as, as a, a broad brush for the whole of colonialism, not just the, the, the division of um, Syria. Be- because <coughs> there was a time when I want to wander across this bit of desert to see my distant cousin in another tribe. And then we came along and said, no, you need a piece of paper. And the piece of paper is written by someone over there that's now called something else because somebody in London said it's called that now. And he's saying, hang on a minute, so I can't go and visit my cousin because some bloke in a place called London has invented a country called Iraq, which I want to go to because I live in this part. I mean, it's, it's nuts, and of course it's falling apart. And it, it hasn't been managed very well. Uh, that is not our fault, not managing it very well. Um, the ancient hatreds that were there and suspicions of the other are coming to the fore. The Sunni-Shia schism, which has played out throughout the centuries, is front and center. Um, and I personally believe we're in the middle of a 30-year war. The lady behind you. My question links to some of the previous ones, actually. Uh, taken its geographical location and the chance of Poland not disappearing off the map quite so often. Didn't quite get all the question. Say again. Ta- taken its geographical location and the chance of Poland not disappearing off the map yeah. quite so often. Do you have any particular interest in that? <laughs> There's a, I've got a, a map, an atlas of modern European history, and if you flick through it really, really quickly... Poland disappears, and then it changes shape and goes up there, and then it disappears again, and then it reappears on the map. Um, happily, it's in the European Union and NATO now. So for the foreseeable future, that's finished. The borders are fixed, which is another reason why Ukraine is so important, because borders, and in Georgia, the, border, and the borders are moved, and it was inviolable, especially after the 1815 um, treaties in, in, in Europe, Treaty of Europe. So that's shaken that idea that borders do not move. However, I think the EU and NATO is strong enough. I think it's wobbling at the moment, but I think it will regain its equilibrium. I don't believe that... uh, I think reports of America's demise are overstated, and I think reports of the demise of the West are overstated. Okay. Zooming off over there, just the person in front of you, actually. Just speak into it, it'll work. All right, thank you. Uh, What is your opinion on the sort of ambiguous foreign policy of uh, Prime Minister Viktor Orban in Hungary? Uh, He's uh, getting closer to the Russians. 
Yeah. Now there's a country. Orban in Hungary, yeah. uh, the leader of Hungary at the moment, who's building a massive fence between Hungary and Serbia. I mean, the entire border of Hungary will have a fence on it. It's pretty ugly. Again, I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. Hungarians have made their choice. That's because everyone's coming up through Greece, walking through Macedonia, walking up through bits of Montenegro, walking up through Serbia, and coming into an EU country, Hungary. They're trying to stop it. Good luck with that. Orban, I believe, is um, uh, the, the inheritor of um, those nasty guys that you had. Was it Hammers you had? The, 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 the fascists, basically. I think he's the, the inheritor of the 1930s fascists. I'm not calling him a fascist. He's in that timeline. Um, I think the anti-Semitism that comes out of Hungary now is among the worst in Europe. Um, I think Hungary is playing a double game now. It's looking back to nationalism and it's simultaneously because Russia... There's this weird thing going on. That because Russia used to be communist, some people of the left still support and like it. It's just absolutely bizarre, soft thinking, but never mind. Um, uh, Hungary's hedging its bets. It's not being a good European neighbour. And uh, that's because of Orban. And, um, yeah, I personally think you're going through a difficult time. Um, I, I don't know what direction Hungary wants to go in. I'm not sure it does itself. Okay. We've only got a few minutes left, so I'm going to try and take a couple of quick ones. There's one at the front, and, there's, and then I'll come to you. I, I do know a lot about football. <laughs> Right, thank you. Now, following on from uh, what you were just saying, um, former Yugoslavia, we, 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 I mean, we, we both remember it when it was the United States, and when it disintegrated, you've now got a situation where two of the countries were in the European Union, the other aspired to join the European Union, despite all the problems which, the, which Greece has, but we were cruelly reminded just a couple of days ago just how sensitive the whole issue was. Uh, so my question, quite simply, is can you foresee in the long term a kind of reunified you know, Yugoslavia, though we wouldn't call it that, within the European Union. Yes. Yugoslavia it was just disastrous. Um, and I, it was shocking for my generation because we thought war was over, to quote that great philosopher John Lennon. Um, and then it wasn't. And we saw people behaving like the Nazis in, in, in Europe again. And it really was, it was a real shock to my generation to see that. Um, they divorced, throwing plates at each other. As you say, two of them are now in the European Union. The rest of them want to come into the European Union. Unfortunately, membership of the European Union now comes with it that you agree that you will join the Eurozone as well eventually. You don't have to join it, but I, just, I think they should scrap that. If you want to come into the European Union, come, you don't have to join the Euro. But anyway, I, I've, I drove through Croatia, through Zagreb, about two years after the war had finished, '97. And people, it was with Serbian plates on the car, and people stood and stared. They, was, they were shocked. Uh, nobody, there was nothing between the two countries other than enmity. Now you can do no problem at all. Football matches, that's different, but you know, so it is with Leeds and Millwall or whatever. So I think they are slowly coming back together. There's a lot of trade going on. Uh, I, last year I drove from Dubrovnik through to Sarajevo. It was all lovely and fine. I had creation plates on in Syria, no problems at all. So I think they're heading in that direction, and I think, I think membership of the European Union, for all of them, would really assist that. Now, we don't have to call it the Union of the Southern Slavs or Yugoslavia. We can call it what you like. It doesn't really matter as long as they get on with each other. Yeah. You just go on. 
Hello. Um, thanks very much. Um, could you? I, I wondered if you had any thoughts on the the geopolitical impact of uh, as um, dependence on oil producing states reduces and, and we move towards renewable energies. Um, what you think the geopolitical implications will be of that? Yeah. Shale. Um, the world is changing, and that is because of things like shale and different technologies. Um, and the beauty of that question is that you can't prove me wrong because I'm going to, you know, we're projecting ahead 30, 40, 50 years now, which is, you know, so you can say what you like. So, but this is what I believe. A number of things are going to happen because America is now self-sufficient in, in uh, energy. It's a massive change in, in their ideology and the way they think. And firstly, they're going to kiss goodbye to the Middle East, slowly. And then it'll be up to China to take care of things there. Because the Americans, they'll still care. I mean, you know, they, they still trade and they still have security interests and they've still got the Fifth Fleet in Bahrain. They'll still care, but it won't be the most important thing. So the shale that they found in Texas and up in Canada is massively, massively important, and it's, it's never happened before. And they are weaning themselves off other people's energy. And when they wean themselves off that heroin of the black oil, uh, things change. The second thing, also, they will also slowly abandon Israel because of demographics. In 200 years' time or 100 years' time, who in America is going to care about Israel when half of them aren't Christian and half of them are Hispanic? And you know, Why would they care? When, when, the, when the Protestant domination of America is, is over. But no, it's, it's massively important. The Chinese are going to have to concentrate really hard on the Straits of Hormuz because if the Americans don't concentrate, somebody else needs to because it needs to be open. Because if you close, if you ch- close the chokeholds, uh, we all drown. I mean, people that talk about uh, fossil fuels being terrible for us, I agree they are, but... Do you want to drive home tonight and put the TV on? Great. Yes, we do. Um, that's a, I think that's a great place to end. That's a great question. You can't get more into geography than fracking. Um, I'm just going to check with the publishers. Books afterwards? Do we have books afterwards? Yeah. yeah the, uh, Tim it can go outside and sign books for you. It's a terrific book. Uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy reading it. But for now, thank you for your brilliant questions. Thank you, Tim Marshall. Thank you. Thank you.